Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week we discuss Brexit. Of course we discuss Brexit, um, but we talk about the votes in the House of Commons this week. We talk about what deal the EU27 might accept. And Helen Thompson of Cambridge University joins us to look about all the other European leaders and what they're thinking. Stephen, do we have to talk about the bad running of the Brexit referendum? Yes, I think we should talk about the conduct of the referendum campaign Essentially, minutes before we sat down here in the, the podcast catacomb, vote leave has been censured by the Electoral Commission. So it's been fined, what, about £60,000-ish, roughly? Yeah, so they've been given the highest possible fine in, in both sort of categories. And Darren Grimes of Believe, which has been found to not effectively be a separate campaign, but an adjunct of vote leave, has been referred to the police, as has... Um, and they overspent by half a million. Yeah, as has the designated hitter of... Uh, so essentially... Of vote you, leave itself. Yeah, when you when you have a any kind of campaign, you have an agent, or officials, basically they are legally liable for if you break the law. i got to say... Okay, actually, I think there was a wild... I was about to say something wildly libelous. I mean, try and rephrase it to be slightly less wildly libelous. Whoever took on the role of being legally liable for a campaign that involved some of the people who were involved in that campaign was a very, 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 very brave person indeed. So I, I have a, a great deal of opinions, many of them slightly contradictory about this, but kind of in no particular order. One of the many problems with referendums is I cannot work out... Now, I think it's fairly clear to me that UK election regulation is is just not fit for purpose for a variety of reasons. However, I cannot conceive of any regulation you can have in a referendum that doesn't make you a fool not to try and bend those rules. Because unlike with a political party where, I mean, so even if... Well, you disband afterwards, right? Yeah, so that's is, the point. It's not going to dog you for ages. You e- just go bankrupt or yeah, whatever. Even if the fine wasn't a faintly comical 20 grand in one, one of the two cases, a sum that, you know, the wider leave movement can very easily... Cra- that is that is not a... They can eat that, yeah. Yeah, that is not an, an exit. But even if you were handing out kind of existential sums, right? Even if you did have a GDPR level hammer, well, ultimately in a referendum campaign... There will at some point, of course, be another uh, campaign on our membership of the European Union. There will be another constitutional referendum in Scotland. But these campaigns will not be, you know, like... There won't be the successor campaigns, will they? There'll be, yeah, yeah there'll be uh, phrases entirely new, fresh, legal. Yeah. And so while with issues of national determination and perhaps with some constitutional protection, yeah, there is no real option other than a referendum. With anything else, it just does create really bad incentives. However, I do find it deeply irksome seeing various kind of, you know, people moving seamlessly from it was advisory, ignore it, to it was won by cheating, ignore it. 
Not least because ultimately, if you don't think that the Remain campaign didn't bend the spirit of the referendum, well, the government I have a put, nine million pound leaflet yeah, from the government. Say, to the sell government you. put out that incredibly badly designed leaflet, which was basically some you know intern's first day on Microsoft Word to tell you about why the European Union was great in punishing non-illustrated detail. Right, compared with Vote Leave, which had that kind of crazy yes, everyone from Iraq is going to move here, which you know was a lie, but it was a very beautifully graphically designed lie. But equally, it does annoy me seeing various kind of pro-Brexit commentators and kind of vote leave outriders going, well, everyone bent the spirit of the rule. Well, if everyone bent the spirit of the rule and you managed to do your bending of the spirit so badly that you actually broke the law, well, I'm I'm sorry, I have no sympathy with you then facing the full... full it, you know, it's kind of a bit like, I mean, actually, to take an example of, of a law I don't agree with, are drug laws, right? Now, lots of people, particularly some of the teenagers in the block, occasionally have a toke, right? A couple of weeks ago, a bike crashed outside. There were police and ambulance and some idiot decided that they were going to light up at that moment, right? And they <laughs> successfully became the first person in the history of our estate to actually be arrested for smoking cannabis, right? Now, I'm sorry, it's not a defense to go, but hundreds of other people in this block aren't so stupid that they don't go, oh, I'm going to light up in front of the cop. Hey, 5-0, have yeah, a bit of this. Yeah. Yeah. And equally, it is not a defense of why I should not be prosecuted for breaking referendum limits, that other people tried to do it, but did it within the spirit of the rules. No, you broke the law. Sorry, them's the breaks. I also think that on a wider point, actually, it, it's a it's not exactly a diversion because I think it's very important. But if you look at the Irish referendum, I know half, I harp on about the Irish referendum for repealing the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution, the abortion ban. There was a lot of money pumped into the Save Both, uh, you know, the No campaign from clearly the American pro-life movement. Like until Facebook and Google banned advertising on the subject um, in Ireland, there was people's you know, were telling me that their Facebook feed was full of this stuff. Like clearly, people were in that case probably not the law, because but the, certainly the spirit of the law that you don't pile huge amounts of money into dark advertising that really can't be seen in other countries' electoral processes. And you know what happened? First of all, Facebook and Google finally woke up to the problem, like after a really, really long time, and agreed to do something about it. And second of all, it didn't work because the other side had a proper campaign, had debated it for a really long time beforehand, had a proper white paper that they put out showing what the legislation would be like afterwards. Like there were lots of other things that the other side did a lot better than remain and a lot of ways in which the referendum was structured a lot better so that that didn't have the impact that it did right so i think it's very tempting to focus on the fact that vote leave are you know have indulged in a lot of skullduggery probably the more interesting question if you're a journalist is or as policymaker is how do you change the rule so that this doesn't happen next time and that's the bit i'm not sure we're going to get to one of the many many problems with the kind of holding of the referendum is that it has in many ways made Britain ungovernable, not least because it's done terrible things to the coalitions of the big two political parties in a way that makes it quite difficult to look at either of them and work out how they could get more votes. Than 40%. Yeah. That's uh, that's the thing I think is fascinating. Is I, I, I didn't tweet this because I just can't be bothered. But if you look at the fact that Kate Hoey, Frank Field, Kelvin Hopkins and Graham Stringer walked through the... No, so Kelvin Hop... Well, it depends on which division. Which di on some of the divisions, On the closest anyway. division, Kelvin Hopkins voted with the Labour whip, despite not being a Labour MP at the present time. Due to... <coughs> <coughs> um, yes, but uh, I just thought there's an alternate universe in which lifelong rebel 
and you're a skeptic backbencher Jeremy Corbyn probably voted with those people I don't know. So, and again, I feel that every week I say when it gets quiet, I will do my what flavor of what what are the various what circle flavor, of hell flavors of Labour Labour lever. Ultimately, I think Corbyn would, uh, if he weren't leader, have ended up in the kind of Skinner Hopkins, uh, yeah, Ronnie Campbell level, right? Now, if you um, if you if you listen to, I'm slightly concerned. I've got Ronnie Campbell's surname wrong, but I'm just going to plow on. Um, if you if you listen to Ronnie Campbell on the European Union, he will talk about how awful it is. He doesn't like it. He's obviously happy about the result. But on votes where there is suddenly an opportunity to defeat the government, he will vote. Yeah. Okay. He, um, whereas the crucial difference between Field, Hoey, and Stringer and the and the you basically kind of I think it's effectively there's uh, there are three Labour leavers who will vote with the government regardless. There are another four, and I think if Jeremy and John were not on the front benches, they would be in this kind of six who will vote with the government, uh, vote against the government when they think the government will fall, but they will not vote on procedural on procedural Brexit issues where the government won't fall. They won't vote to soften Brexit. Then you have your kind of Caroline Flint, Gareth Snell, Laura Smith. Easy I way. won't vote in ways that my constituents get annoyed by. The reason why uh, I think the government is in considerable danger, particularly over customs, is it is not an issue. I'm yet to speak to a Labour MP in either of those second two groups who either goes, this is an ideologically important part of leaving for me, or goes, this is a point that I think that people who voted to leave care about. And provided you are the Labour Party and you can deliver those two groups, you can defeat the government. Right. So because they they vote with the Labour Party, they don't help the government out by part, like in the way that like, the fact that the three, well, and on those divisions last night, the government only won one of them by, what was it, 312 to 315? Uh, no, it was 303 to 300. Because I mean, one of the... Oh God, we don't, let's not talk about pairing. No one needs... It's... No, I, th- I, I think pairing is an important issue. And no, I, I do too, but yeah. it also just makes me want to stick spears into my okay, eyes yeah. because it's, it is the source of so many bad takes on the internet that I, you know, like such and such a person didn't turn up for the vote. Such um, and such a person didn't do this. And you're like, yeah, because they've just literally... I mean, I think hasn't... Um, I don't know if Laura Pidcock, for example, was, is off on maternity leave. I don't know if she voted last night. But... Well, particularly because last night was... But Jo uh... Swinson was going through the lobby when she was one week overdue. Like, yeah. sometimes people have to miss votes because they're literally in a maternity hospital. And also last night's close vote was not a vote that people expected to be close literally until until about eight o'clock. Labour right, because Guto a... Beb resigned for backing the government's position at lunchtime on Monday, right? Yeah, so this is the thing. Is at lunchtime at Monday... Woo! Labour had a two-line whip, which is essentially a, look, we'd like you to vote this way, Mm, but if you can't make it for, you know, if if you let us know that, you know, you've got a hospital appointment or a school play, do you know what, live your life. Then, because ultimately Labour's position was, these ERG amendments are a joke, we we are just not interested in that. Then suddenly the government said they would support the ERG amendments, and immediately uh, you had a bunch of Tory Remainers being like, I'm sorry, what? So then suddenly the Labour Party went, actually, it's a three-line whip and you need to be there. But obviously, if you are uh, someone on maternity leave in Durham or you're a Scottish MP who's said you can get permission to go you can't very easily get you literally back, can't get which back. is Which you won't be able to with. until Harriet Harman's plan for proxy voting comes in, which we should all support. Yeah, it's it's thing. So some of the people who've been getting a hard time on Twitter, I both feel sorry for and I also deeply don't, right? Because... Because basically, every, are you talking about Tim Farron and Vince Cable? Yeah, because every time there is a close vote, 
actually less so in this current incarnation of, of the Lib Dem press office. But but under Tim Farron and before that, they used to do this an awful lot when it, they would go, oh, if only Exmoor had turned up, yeah. then we would have won. And it's just like, no, that's not true. And you know it's not true. And if you live by that kind of incredibly because disingenuous it... politics, then you deserve, frankly, to die by that incredibly disingenuous mode of doing politics. Right. Well... Put that in your pipe and smoke it, Vince Cable. <laughs> Stephen's spoken. Is there anything else that has happened this week that is interesting? So there's uh, some weird thing about the government um, deciding to try and go to recess early, which has the sort of slight error of, of someone kind of ringing a doorbell and running away. Yeah, it's a bit then... go home, the Conservative Party, you're drunk. Also, so I, uh, in a slightly <laughs> shameful moment in my free morning email, so late last night, in the, sp- I, in the spirit that no question is too stupid to ask out loud, I was uh, having uh, drinks with a variety of senior conservatives and some other journalists, and I basically said, look, you, this plan to move it early, it doesn't matter. You can all plan on WhatsApp, and won't people get, won't you be more? And then I was very confidently told by everyone else present that this is not true, and then you can't have a no confidence when there is no yeah. parliament for MPs to hold it in. However, since then, I have looked this up, and this isn't... So I don't think this can possibly be the case. However, as with some of the elements of the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, despite if, That's if a large I didn't number understand. of Tory MPs believe something to be true, and Downing Street believes something to be true about the Conservative Party's internal rules... But the literal interpretation of it is, and that is not true. Is it true? For, Do you know, if, if it was Labour, I would be heading towards an extremely tense nineteen-hour NEC meeting. But yeah, what's but, the version of that in the Conservative Party? So they similarly have a, a ruling body that is elected in ways that are just far too lengthy to go in, in right. into at, at this moment. But it doesn't have the same interpretive function. The 1922 committee, which represents backbench MPs. So King Graham Brady basically gets to wield his sword of justice. But the thing is, I cannot conceive of a situation in which Graham Brady gets... 48 letters. Gets 48 letters over the summer, looks at it and goes, I'm in Ibiza. I too could not envisage that, having yeah, met uh, Graham Brady. <laughs> I therefore can't be bothered to do this. I think a lot of commentary about Graham Brady seems to ignore the fact that he's a young by the standards of MP, he's a young guy. He's only, he's not yet 50. He doesn't want... I guess it's just when someone talks about grammar schools that much, I sort of mentally add 10 years to their physical appearance. Yeah, but he, but you know, he he doesn't want his career to end at the same time as Theresa May's, right? This I didn't, he'd sit, you know, someone picks up a phone and says, Graham, I've just sent a letter and he's just like... Sorry, I can't hear Yeah, yeah, that's not going to (laughs) happen. However, I I do think that there are 48 names uh, reported does suffer a bit the same problem as the Labour has the numbers to defeat the EEA thing, which is actually when you sit down with a list of the 300 Tory MPs and try to find 48 Tory MPs who are silly enough Do you know what I to loved? believe that that would be a good idea. You actually that, can't get to 48? The rumour that I loved was the idea that the whip thought it would be a really good idea to force the no-confidence vote, which they thought she would win, because then you can't have another one for a year under the rules. And therefore they would do that. And I think it was Duncan Robinson of the FT who tweeted that would be the banter timeline way of doing it. I do not just feel that would be the kind of thing that the Whip's incredibly clever plan to get to force a fake confidence vote in Theresa May ended up bringing down Theresa May is is like very 2018. Well, the thing is, I actually think it is harder. Yeah, having sat down with the, yeah, kind of, uh, you know, as, as I did when we did the EEA numbers and I sat down and literally picked up a phone and, yeah, went, 
Yeah, right, yeah, like one and what? Yeah, basically with the EA, what I drew, I drew a plausible list of Labour MPs who I thought might rebel if they were forced to vote to keep us in the EA. I knew that I had to get to a certain number, and basically once I got to a number where I could go, yes, uh, this is not, this is a nonsense story. You can't get the numbers. I wrote, wrote it up, and similarly with the the forty eight, I found it very difficult to get to even kind of twenty five, right. Of, of Tory MPs who are, there's a big difference in going, I'm annoyed and going, I'm actually going to do this. You just get a lot more of like, yeah, but what could we do? However, if the whips did decide, uh, and I don't think that story was anything other than paper talk, but if the Tory whips did decide to uh, trigger a leadership uh, confidence vote, I actually think weirdly her chances of losing it once it started are um, actually quite high because once it started... Oh, yeah, once it started, the process has happened. It's, it's, you kind of think, well, we're going to have this embarrassing thing that's happening in front of everybody where it's really obvious how disunited we are. Mm, and a bunch of people think she on. has to go at some point. So yeah. you kind of go, okay, well, if it if it has to be... You know, kind of, if it's a choice between her staying on for at least another year and us getting a new leader now, then you can see... Yeah, I, it I, is I, a bit I, like I'm... the coup slash, more accurately, coups against Jeremy Corbyn in 2016, where you had a bunch of people with sort of ill-conceived half-plans and then kind of the first ill-conceived half-plan goes off and then the owners of the other kind of two ill-conceived half-plans are like, oh, well, if we're going, we better detonate now. And obviously all they did was blow up themselves. And that, I think, is a similar dynamic if you did get to 48. Yeah, what I'm saying is, Julian Smith, I'm sure you listen to the New Statesman podcast. Don't do it. You you might think it'd be banter. It might not very well be banter. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now we're joined by a special guest person in the podcast broom cupboard, Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy at the University of Cambridge, and also from the Talking Politics podcast. Let's say the joint first best politics podcast in, in Britain, <laughs> obviously. And I'd like to think we're the other one, but we're probably not, Stephen. I assumed you were talking about reasons to be cheerful. Yeah. <laughs> How you wound me. Um, Helen, you come in to talk about football, but we thought we'd grab you to talk a bit about um, Brexit because who who can ever be tired of talking about Brexit? <laughs> Certainly not me. Is there any Brexit deal that can pass the House of Commons? It's hard to see one at the moment because if you look at what's happening with this white paper, you've now got dissent from both sides with what Justin Greening has, has, has done. And at the very least, you would have thought that Theresa May had to keep the let's describe them as Remainers, but that wing of her of her party uh, together over this. The only thing that I would say, and I think is, is that we all we all who spend our time commenting about politics need to take this to some extent on board, is, is, is that things are changing very quickly in the international world. You know, Trump is a massively disruptive factor in world politics. 
at the moment. And I think that th this issue in relation to the European Union has clearly not played itself out. And it may yet still, I think, have ramifications where Brexit's concerned. I think that's really interesting because there's a weird kind of elastic thing about Donald Trump, right, which is actually his visit at the weekend when he basically nuked from orbit um, Theresa May in the middle of having dinner with Theresa May. Yeah. And then... Weirdly, the next day she's there holding his hand again, having a press conference like nothing had happened. I think the really odd thing I find about Donald Trump is that he blows apart the kind of international order, but there's this kind of muscle memory where everyone just continues as if he hasn't just kind of... I think in some perverse way that she was strengthened by the Trump aspects of what happened last week by the end. In what way? Of it. Partly because he did backtrack and partly because it brought people to be sympathetic to her who weren't previously sympathetic because then suddenly it looks like, okay, there is a, you know, a certain concept of, of Brexit that let's say Johnson and Farage are representing, which involves moving Britain very close to the United States. And then lots of people who would really rather still be in the European Union think, well, okay, if the choice is Theresa May's version of Brexit subject to what the EU might actually agree or not, or that... Then we're with Theresa May. I thought that was the interesting thing about the Ma interview. I don't know what you felt about that. But the thing that she couldn't quite articulate about the common rules area was that there's already a big problem with us moving closer to US standards on any kind of trade deal, which is just the same thing that sank TTIP. People don't want chlorinated chicken. They don't want to have the kind of food standards, for example, agricultural standards that America's already got. So the idea of a kind of big, amazing free trade deal with America was kind of pre-knackered already, no matter what we ended up, where we ended up with on alignment. Yeah, and particularly once you kind of get into the issues around the Irish border. I mean, also the slight weirdness of the whole we should have a US trade deal is that the sovereignty argument about the problem of being uh, in within the regulatory orbit of the European Union is entirely correct. However, I am yet to hear an argument as to why there is a difference from a sovereignty perspective between being yoked to one regulatory hegemon as opposed to another, other than a kind of ideological fixation that some Brexiteers have on one party within the United States. Um, and people quite like European regulation. Yeah, every time you poll people on you know, how you feel about Regulation X, they actually quite like um, red tape. They don't like it when you call it red tape, but it does make it essentially impossible to move away from it, even if you have the freedom to. Yeah, that's uh, one of the things diverge. I find interesting is the fact that you know Daily Mail ran really big campaigns against what it called Franken foods, you know, ge genetic modified foods. A lot of the kind of stuff that is that would be much more in the American sphere of regulation than European sphere is really not that popular here. But I want to Helen, I want to come back to this idea you said about things moving very fast in Europe. What do you think are the kind of main chess pieces on on the board with that? I think the main thing. Oh, it's hard to say what the main thing is, is but one of the main things. Yeah is that Trump is subjecting Germany to pretty fierce attack. I mean, it's not just, I think, the language that that he's using. I mean, take, for example, the language he was using about Germany and Russia and basically saying that um, Germany had sold itself out to Russia for um, energy, for gas uh, in um, particular. I think that's actually only a means to an end to what he's actually concerned about, which is the trade aspect of it, is that he wants a confrontation with Germany about trade. And he does think about it as Germany more than as about the European Union. And so he's just not prepared to observe what some people might say the fiction, some people might say the reality of the European Union having a trade policy, and you can only deal with the EU as the EU as, as trade. He's using his ambassador in Germany to try to stoke divisions within German politics, to try to basically make some alliance with the German car makers, particularly the Bavarian car makers, tie that to what's going on in terms of Germany's um, internal um, politics. 
And I think it's reasonable to see, it's easy to, well, it's plausible at least, um, to see the way in which a lot of pressure about Germany on trade that involves the car makers, particularly, um, and other manufacturers actually in, in Bavaria, putting pressure via the CSU issue with the Christian Democrats, the internal division within the um, German government um, at the moment, and them saying, look, we're not dealing with a confrontation with the United States about trade that involves tariffs, and then having no deal Brexit. Now, that could work out to the government's advantage. It could not, because at the same time, we're not entirely sure, I think, is is to what Trump's end game is, where this is concerned. I mean, you know, is it actually that, I mean, one way of looking at it would be to say, okay, the two countries that he's got in his fire line, if you like, at the moment most is Germany and China. Which of them matter to him? Okay. Which of them matter to him most? Is it actually Germany or is it China? This isn't something you're going to hear very much on this podcast, but does he have a point about, particularly one of the things he mentioned was the Russian pipeline that's going to supply um, Germany's, you know, and it does, you know, lots of the other Baltic states feel that they're being bypassed in that, as I understand, they're quite unhappy about it. Does he have a point about that, about the fact that Germany's interests are therefore tied up quite heavily with Russia's in terms of its energy supply? I think that he's right in the sense of describing a certain reality. Uh, is, is, and, but th- this is a reality that's long been true. I mean, Germany and other um, European countries, more central European countries than you know, that Britain, have been energy dependent on what was then the Soviet Union from the 1970s um, onwards. I mean, Italy was even trying to make deals with the Soviet Union about oil and gas back in the 1950s. Um, I think where he hasn't got a point is, is it's not really plausible to expect Germany to change. I mean, aside from anything else, is they can't do, Germany couldn't do what Trump wants, or says he wants anyway, which is to start buying um, liquid natural gas imports because they don't have any liquid natural gas port infrastructure. It takes a long time or considerable year and any significant number of years to um, to accumulate that. So there is no possibility that even in the medium term, I think that, 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 that Germany is going to change um, tack about this. And even if it wanted to, as a long-term project, then I think it would have to bear in mind as to whether the United States is actually going to be able to maintain its position, which only acquired last year of being a natural gas net exporter, how long shale gas in the United States is is going to last. Now, it's obviously very difficult judging what Trump does and doesn't understand. I think he probably understands something of, of that. And I suspect that actually he's not really expecting Germany to turn around and say, okay, we're abandoning Nord Stream 2 and we're going to buy natural gas imports. He's using it to put pressure on them about the thing that I think he does care about, which is the size of Germany's trade surplus. But that also makes me think of his comments about refugees, because Merkel's decision to admit a million um, refugees from Syria and other places is something that's particularly caused ruptures with, as you say, Bavaria. So him pushing that idea of the kind of this Muslim wave coming into Europe both furthers his goals in terms of ethnic nationalism and also has the happy side effect of the fact that Merkel is relying on a coalition partner that has its power base in the region most affected and most unhappy about that. Yeah, I I think that the one thing that he does understand how to do is disruptive politics and one of the reasons why he's good at it or in this sense good at it um, is is because he doesn't take seriously the way that liberals talk about the way the international order exists he, he goes for the hypocrisies of it the fictions of it and he he doesn't just critique them he acts like that they're not real so you can turn around and say something like okay doesn't he understand isn't he so, is he he's so ignorant he doesn't understand that the eu determines trade policy not the the German government, but he's actually trying to show, I think, that actually when it comes to it, when it really matters, that you can get the German government to engage in 
trade policy independently of the EU. And what about Emmanuel Macron, presumably currently sleeping off, I would imagine, <laughs> a fairly epic hangover after France winning the World Cup? Well, we were talking about Macron and on the football podcast. I think in terms of symbolically for Macron, this really is a, a, a massive moment because the France is back rhetoric was really quite important to the 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 the, um, the Macron project and that that's basically said that we cannot have a situation where the European Union looks like it's dominated by Germany rather than dominated by the long-standing French-German axis and I think you can say that what the Hollande presidency did was to basically sideline France in at the core of the of, of the um, the European um, Union so the World Cup, I think, is a politically is a, symbolically a big deal um, for Macron. What it doesn't obviously solve is is, is, is political problems in them in themselves, um, because he's still in a in a position where what he wants most from the German government in terms of significant eurozone reform is not going to happen. And it isn't just because the Germans aren't on side with it that the German government's not on side with it, but there's any number of other now. European EU governments are not on, not on side of it. There's this new Hanseatic leaders. Well, it's not a new Hanseatic league, but that's like the way that it's been described, which I think has got up to twelve members. The last time that that that, that I looked. Explain at who it. those people are for those of us whose Hanseatic <laughs> league knowledge might not be quite. Well, what they're, it could they're be. basically um, northern central European states. So they now include Austria. They're probably led by. I think it's fair to say led by the Netherlands. But interestingly, Ireland has joined this group now. That wasn't the first time which are a coalition saying no to Eurozone, for the Eurozone reform, particularly in terms of no to anything that looks like a, a debt union. So in this sense, Macron's actually more politically isolated on the Eurozone than he was when he started. Um, and I think that if you look in terms of French domestic politics, then he's also not in as strong position as he was even six months ago, as his approval ratings have around the 40% um, level. So what does he want? For, he, does he want essentially greater integration? I think that he wants, he, it's a paradox, or maybe it's not a paradox, it's two things um, that, that are not necessarily contradictory with each other. He wants greater integration at the core in the sense of he wants something that looks more um, like shared liabilities, particularly when it goes to the, um, the Eurozone. And I think at the same time, though, he wants weaker terms of membership for Eastern Europe states, potentially beyond that as well. So uh, essentially a two-tier European Union where the core integrates more, but not, not in ways that would mess around with what he would think of as French sovereignty, about fiscal matters in particular. And at the same time, uh, that he does not want the um, East European members in particular to um, be able to impede, as he sees, I think, that they're able to at the moment, what he wants to happen at the core. The thing that a lot of uh, commission officials talk about as a potential solution to Brexit is that the United Kingdom ends up in an association agreement, essentially an outer ring where it kind of floats around and then the problem goes away. Now, there are obviously lots of things you can critique about that as being wildly optimistic. But how does that work for Macron in terms of his objectives? Uh, I think that Macron would quite like that way of, of doing things. Uh, I think he said actually in the Sorbonne speech and it gave in um, the first autumn after he'd been elected that he could see a role for or place rather for, for Britain in some outer, um, outer tier. 
I think that the the difficulty is that the EU would first have to resolve how it's going to accommodate two tiers within a single legal and constitutional order. And I don't think it's got any idea about really at the moment about how to do that, because that's going to involve unraveling quite a lot of of, of, of treaty um, law. And indeed, in some sense, the whole legal and constitutional principle on which the European Union works. But if you could get that, get there first, then I think it's possible to see some kind of position for Britain in that tier. I think, it, interestingly, it goes back to the point that you made earlier about what's the difference between being regulatory aligned with the with the European Union in regard to sovereignty in, in the United States. And I think one answer is, is because the European Union has bound up this regulatory question with the European Court of Justice. And the European Court of Justice is committed essentially to interpretations of European law that move towards ever closer union. So actually using a court like that, that has got that kind of commitment from members who aren't actually in the legal and constitutional order that's supposed to be moving to ever closer union is is pretty difficult. And I think that the European Union wants something like where Macron says he wants to go anyway, is going to have to get to grips with that problem. But not to be all like, you don't hear about this in the hated MSM, but one of the reasons that I listen to the Talking Politics podcast is you do look at Europe really in big thematic ways and in quite a lot of pretty crunchy detail, which you can do in a podcast, right? Because it's people talking, it's not going to bore you to tears. And the same thing, we've made a real a conscious effort in the last couple of years in the New Statesman to really improve our coverage of European affairs. You know, the FT does it very well. But I think all the Brexit coverage, and this is something that Alan Rusbridge alluded to in his piece about the BBC, it's still covered as kind of an argument within Britain that then we take to them and then they go, okay, well, thank you for coming up with your idea of Brexit. And there is really, I think it would really help our understanding of Brexit to understand the fact that the European Union has got a lot of other stuff on its plate, right? They don't want to keep us haunting summits for the next five years going, hello, we still haven't sorted out Brexit. How's that all kind of coming along? Absolutely. I mean, I think that it's a a curse really on on both sides of the debate in in this country as it was conducted in the referendum campaign itself and um, since is, is that the European Union, as the European Union, as the political entity it is, scarcely features in the British debate about mm. Brexit. I mean, either it's some monster which can be left behind literally almost in some sense by slaying it, or it's some symbol of what it means to be not British or beyond British or British as part of something bigger or multicultural or liberal or multilateral, and actually that it's a very distinctive political order or occasionally that merkel's in charge of it right there was that david davis thing where he had a series of tweets where he said basically what we're going to do after we've done brexit after we've voted to leave is we're going to turn up and we're going to go and talk to merkel and then she's going to sort it out for us yeah i think there's some i mean i think that that's obviously was was naive presented exactly like that i I think that there is some there was some truth to that in this sense is is that one of the unintended consequences of brexit was that it really weakened merkel's position within the European Union. So I think you could tell the story of what decision-making in the European Union from probably around the time of um, Hollande's election, maybe a little bit after that, through to Brexit, as this is the Merkel show, that pretty much every major decision was being made by Merkel and that others accepted that that's what the rules of the game were. Indeed, I I heard uh, a former head of government of one of the EU member states saying, pretty much that this was actually after the after the time period that I'm talking about but I think that 
because Brexit. she was so dominant in her country and also because Germany was so rich and doing so well and, and was in the bailout position. Yeah, to- I think that also, yeah, one of the things that the Eurozone crisis did was to strengthen Germany's position in this way because basically enacting as the, the ones who decided the rules about the allocation of credit, albeit along with the European Central Bank, it had a new means of making side payments to, um, to other states and the ways in which that she dealt with the migration crisis in 2015, and I think crucially into 2016 and the, and the, and the Turkey deal, was very much about um, Merkel. But Brexit began... That's uh, the Turkey deal to keep Syrian refugees in, in Turkey. Turkey. Yeah, but I think Brexit began a process whereby that she has lost that influence, even before we get to the, the, um, the German election. And I think that is in part because within Germany, but also within another number of other European countries, that blame was attached to Merkel for Brexit happening. In terms of the, because the idea that a lot of kind of what I would describe as the non-headbanging Brexiteers is that at the 11th hour, there will still come a point where member states intercede. Now, obviously, we are quite close to the 11th hour now. Do you think that that is still a possibility or than one of the consequences of Merkel's sort of greater weakness and the kind of opposition from Ruter and other people towards what Macron wants to do is that there is not really the capacity within the EU at present for that kind of 11th hour intervention? I think that is quite a plausible interpretation, yeah. It's not clear what the European Union collective position is. Now, clearly, they have a set of short-term negotiating tactics and which and to some extent ends to which that they uh, agree but when it comes to making the kind of existential decision what kind of relationship does the european union want with britain in the future i don't think that you would bet on the european union being able to um, give a coherent answer to that any more than the british government can come up with a coherent answer as to what it thinks that that relationship um should be and I think that's part I've been thinking about this over the last few days I think that's part of a kind of it says something about the nature of what the European Union political project became that we're in this position whereby a member state withdraws its consent to being in the European um, Union and nobody quite knows what to do now that that has happened because there's just not there's almost like not there's not room in the in the script for either in British politics, I think, partly because really to seize that and to run with that aspect of the story would be have to say, okay, that um, economic questions are going to have to have a second, secondary um, place. We'll have to accept some material sacrifice to have, in some sense, what's become, you know, um, our ability to govern ourselves in a in a in a in a democratic sense. And I don't think that our politicians know how to have that kind of politics. And at the same time, the European Union would have to get beyond its limitations in dealing with substantive existential questions because it has a tendency either to say there's a set of rules and procedures to follow and we follow the rules and the procedures and the decision comes out the other end, or when clearly the rules don't work, as in the migration crisis in the summer of 2015, then you get arbitrary decision-making from the most powerful player um, at that time. And that doesn't work either because even in Merkel's terms, she had to... Retreat. So, in some sense, I think we're in some political space where so really nobody, everything is broken and no one knows how to. Yeah, fix really, it. Really knows, really no, nobody knows what to do. Well, what a cheery <laughs> note. <laughs> Helen Tolson, thank you very much for joining us. And you can hear more from Helen and the rest of the Cambridge University crew on uh, Talking Politics. <laughs>
And now for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. Uh, you've lost some of your enthusiasm, Stephen. That's that's upsetting to me. This week's You Asked Us comes from Ewan, and it's about the Labour Party's adoption of a definition of anti-Semitism that is not as strong as the IHRA. Am I getting my acronym right there? Yes. So the Labour Party's Code of Conduct does include part of the uh, IHRA um, definition, which I keep calling the IRA definition. Uh, but, Probably don't do that in public. Yeah, uh, thought. Which... I really don't like acronyms, right? They just they're they're like sort of. No, I take but I take them I take them out of copy all the time. Yeah. If you're going to say, um, you know, the whatever it is, like long thing that ends in organisation, at the second reference, just say organisation. Don't say the TCRPO. Yeah. Anyway. Right, but it doesn't include all of the specific examples of anti-Semitic behaviour. The reason why this has upset a large number of people. In the Including what, 68 rabbis? 68 have written? rabbis. I mean, it is a really remarkable uh, feat number of, of rabbis. Of, of, I mean, the, to give you an idea of, I mean, it really is kind of a a huge cross section of theological, socioeconomic, and political opinion within British Jewry than has signed this letter. I mean, to give you an idea of it, of those 68 rabbis, not all of the 68 would agree with me that there were 68 rabbis signing. <laughs> that letter, right? Yeah, we, yeah. We, that really is, in fact, a that fun game if you're, if you're into theological uh, yeah. disputes, which of course I am. Is to try and work out what the lowest number or what the lowest number you would get if you asked all of the signatories how many, how many rabbis, rabbis have signed this letter, <laughs> right? So, I mean, this is the thing, and a lot of the time uh, when outriders will try and defend uh, the Labour leadership, they will kind of say, "Oh, you know." You, you can't, you know, actually, you know, there is not overwhelming unity or blah, blah, blah. And, of course, you see the same game when uh, when the Conservative Party wants to go, oh, well, actually, you know, the, the Muslim community doesn't all feel the same way. Mm-hmm. Actually, this is an issue in which you can say, no, look, this there obviously are always people who disagree with, with any given opinion, but actually this is as close to unity as you could theoretically uh, conceive. Uh, the thing which a lot of people object to is that it feels that the specific objection, the specific examples that have not been included are the examples that people in the Labour Party have tended to do, right? Like, Can we go as far as saying they're the ones that would specifically mean that Corbyn and the leadership's allies would have to be removed from the party? Yeah, I think the thing is you can say that it is partly about protecting elements within his own base. The question, of course, we've been asked is, uh, does... That mean that Labour Party is institutionally racist. As far as I'm concerned, because I feel I haven't burned off any subscribers lately. Um, well, let's go by the, the McPherson uh, yeah, report, McPherson which is into definition the... is open and shut. So yes, they are. So um, the McPherson report, which is the report into the Met's handling of the death of Stephen Lawrence, said that oppressed people have the right to define their own oppression, essentially, yeah. right? And that if you ignore that, if you have, in the, I think in the, you know, in the case of that saying, the black community saying, we are being disproportionately targeted by, say, stop and search, policing is happening in these ways, that if you don't listen to that, that you just disregard community opinion like that, then that is institutionally racist. And I think that, unfortunately, unless you want to rewrite that definition, then there's no way to say that the Labour Party isn't ignoring the broad spectrum of British jury on this is is anything else. Yeah, and of course it is true that it is... Well, actually, I was going to say, I don't find it galling. I actually find it faintly hilarious that a large chunk of the Conservative Party has decided they actually do like the McPherson definition after all in this specific instance. Yeah, obviously it is hypocritical, but... I'm really tired of the two political parties treating racism like first past the post. You know, like, oh, you know, we're one millimetre less 
anti-Semitic than they are Islamophobic. Therefore, we win. Or That's the thing I think has become really distasteful about it. So Michael Fabricant, the Tory MP, put a horrible tweet up at the weekend in which he showed Sadiq Khan as... I mean, was Sadiq Khan as a balloon being shagged from behind by a pig balloon? Yep. Right? I'm trying to remember who was the pig and who was the balloon. But Who it was, was the pig and who was doing the porking? Oh my God, I can't believe you said that. But nonetheless, it was a fairly obvious reference to the fact that Sadiq Khan is Muslim, originally doesn't eat pork. Like, if you'd done that to a Jewish MP with a similarly with a pig balloon, I think people would have gone, uh... But the block defence was, yeah, but Labour's well anti-Semitic, so... And you're like, okay, both things can be true. Labour can have a problem with anti-Semitism, and you should also not have Tory MPs posting Islamophobic tweets about the Muslim mayor of London. How could, like, these two things can coexist people but both parties have now got a convenient thing where yeah. they just do whataboutery yeah and the follow-up question we got from the same person is what does this mean for democracy and bad, i suppose the things? answer gonna i'm go just gonna play a tape of my own inner screaming for yeah i just think that's the problem is that when you have in a situation in which people are just clearly using these things uh, only caring about racism when it's as in when it suits them for partisan reasons is not a situation that you you want to have like I just think that's a really, it just, it cheapens the entire cause on both sides, I think, is it just makes it look like actually people don't care about the principles at stake. I mean, part of me does think we should start doing um, Norm Watch, but that would mainly be me saying, why is Esther McVeigh still in her job every single week? Isn't that really troubling? But this is yet another one of the many norms that does deeply trouble me than we Right, which just... is what I've written my column about this week, actually, is that we're seeing an exclusive preview of that, which is about Nigel Farage and him being treated as still like the kind of kindly uncle joke fest. And there was a tweet by BBC's this week that was like, ho, 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 people say he's on TV too much. We've got two of him here. And you're like, the guy spoke at an alternative for Deutschland rally hosted by an MEP who was the granddaughter of Hitler's finance minister who called for illegal immigrants to be shot at the border and said barbaric Muslim rapists were on the ra- rampage in Germany. Like- yeah, and he leads no party, and he has no. Right. You know, there is there there is simply not a a, a a good enough argument for a public service broadcaster to a feature him that much, but also b do a hilarious joke about it. Um, right, and this is the thing I just and just because he was once leader of UKIP and they did once get four point five million votes, none of those things are true anymore. So why is he still on there, and why is he still being treated as a kind of lovely cartoon uncle rather than held to account for endorsing? really despicable views with his presence at a, like we're not at a time when it is we are complacent should be complacent enough to be making jokes about this stuff well that was a brisk end to the podcast Stephen <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Helen Lewis. It's recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed by Creative Commons. Subscribers to the New Statesman get more, including a a free weekly guide to what's coming out in books, music, and film written by yours truly. So subscribe now at www.newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe. (laughs) 